The Over the Bonnet podcast is brought to you by Gympie Central Medical Centre, Gympie Foam and Rubber, Luscious Slicks and BePositive.com.au. In this episode, I get to chat with a man who grew up in North Queensland, learning and practising his local Aboriginal lifestyle. Joe McIver is now teaching others how to hunt and live off the land, as well as taking tours to sacred sites and sharing local customs. Over the Bonnet with Mark Peepers. <laughs> well, well, at least the guests are good. You'll never know what happens with the conversation when it's Over the Bonnet. <laughs> You're kidding me, aren't you? Joe McIver, welcome to Over the Bonnet. Thank you, Mark. So, you've got an interesting background. Tell us all about it. Where do you come from? I was born in Cooktown, 1961, in the old Cooktown Hospital. It is now a Jehovah Witnesses Worship Hall, uh, still standing in Cooktown. A lot of locals born in that old hospital. What are your recollections of those early days? I was brought up with my grandparents. My grandfather used to take us hunting and gathering food almost every day or second day and, you know, living on the bush wildlife such as snakes, scrub turkey, fish, guana, blue tongue lizards, bandicoots, porcupine, anteaters. Um, it was, yeah, pretty much real traditionally with my grandfather. He was very, very true blood, you know, of the land. So what are your recollections of your grandfather? My grandfather, he was a good inspiration. He taught us how to make spear with him and his brother. His name was Joe Burns and his surname was is McIver and I think it's Scottish and he they usually got their surnames off station owners where they worked. So his was McIver and his brother was Burns but his traditional name we come from the Bungalwara land and the language we speak is Kukiyemidir and that's originated on the Normanby River the language was found and that's where he was born uh, and there was a spot up there where he actually born near a, river, a little creek. At the moment we are on that property about 36,000 acres and we work in to look after it. The half of it's uh, freehold title and the other half we work with the state to preserve old cave paintings, uh, sacred sites. We're hoping to get it all heritage listed so we can have visitors on country and come and learn our ways. What sort of stories did your grandfather tell you when you were a young fella? Uh, one of the main rules that he sort of told us that um, don't go out and kill something for fun you have to eat it if you're going to kill it that's why we have um, different traditional names and I think it's important that if each person that carries uh, a, a language name that's for the protection of that particular animal or species some kind of species or plant because they gotta respect it and do not go greedy on certain food because it's it it'll be aired out or destroyed it has to follow the season you said you went out and and learned traditional bush tucker from your grandfather how easy is it to live off the land as you're growing up, it's a bit of a challenge. You can, um, he'll, when he used to take us out in the morning, go out for the full day, he'll, you might have a light breakfast like damper and tea or porridge my grandma used to make. Then we don't really take food with us, maybe a piece of damper. Most time we'd take just water and then we'd walk around and eat the yams that you can dig in the soil when you're hungry. 
yeah and um, find a running stream and most time when we're chasing say bandicoots we'd find a hollow log like a big didgeridoo and then you stick the stick down the, the hole and if there's fur on the end of that stick you know there's a there's a animal in there so what we do to get it out would he'd make a fire at their hand and smoke it out while me and my uncle were small we'd be at the other end with a club and dong it on the head the bandicoot when it comes out and we'd get about maybe two at the most and then take it home and burn all the hair off it gut it and chop it up and make a stew out of it. How important is it to be learning these things as a young man for you as an Aboriginal? I think it's it's very important because um, the that it proves the connection to country and to culture and how we live in the bush. Back in the day, the old people were put on reserves because they were taken off their land, but still they had that survival way of hunting and gathering and it was very important to eat certain food at certain time of the year and like for the flora and fauna what flower blooms tells us what's in season and when's the best time to eat a marine life or chase animals. So what flora and fauna can you give us some examples of different flora and fauna and then what you've got to look for? Yep. The wattle tree, when that blooms, all the wattles, whenever they, you see them blooming, that's a sign of certain marine life, uh, nice and fat, to go out hunting and fishing for, like the stingray. We call that gundaru in our language, and we spear that, and when you spear it, it you, you cut the belly open, and if that the liver is light pink it's a nice fat one it's worth eating and if it's color like red it's um, a bit poor but um, sometimes you can keep the poor ones until you get a fat one and then you mix make it bigger without that red liver in it you have to mix that liver with the 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 meat in the flaps of the from the stingray so what do they taste like it's all white meat um, it's very like a salty mince a little bit, yeah. But once you keep washing it in water, you can then add a little bit more salt if you want. Yeah, it's really nice. What's your favourite bush tucker? I think all of them. I think. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. Well, most of the time we I used to take um, snake to school with a piece of damper for my lunch when I was going to primary school. Uh, it was, and I'd often have my little white mates come over and ask me what what, the, what am I having for lunch? So I'd tell them it's snake and damper and they'd, they'd often ask me if they want to try it out. Yeah, I said, yeah, no worries. And sometimes we'd take um, bush black currants. We call it nirpun in our language and it's very very high in protein very nice vitamin c young fellas were coming up to you and young white fellas were asking about the uh, food you're eating mm. what did they think of it i think they found it um very um, nice because it wasn't the first time they've come up to me they've come up you know, like you know two three times in a week while I was going to school and because I always took food to lunch and wherever I go and um, and they were also good mates too the non-indigenous people yeah they were really respectful of the the way how we lived was it good for them to see that you were really living in a traditional sense yes it was very good and most of them turned out to be you know, my, one of my best best mates and all of them and they respected that and they 
basically we'd hung out hung out with during the school every day and sharing you know camp overs and uh, spending a bit of time with each other telling stories uh, I found them very very friendly yeah and we're gonna get back to the snake what does snake taste like <laughs> snake oh yeah <laughs> that the one that we uh, eat is is the python and we call that in our language mongaru Mongaru tastes like chicken. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> not as bad as KFC, but it's, <laughs> not <laughs> but it's nice, yeah. How did you cook it? How do you prepare these things? Last time we cooked one real big one with my grandfather, he um, got the snake, gutted it, and with the skin and all, he put it in a coil on uh, a ground oven, cooked it on the cold and then covered it with the coals again and just left it there for probably a couple of hours maybe until it was pretty much nice and cooked. So once it was cooked, he pulled it out and we'd just pick at it all day long. Yeah. Yeah. Do you eat the skin? No, but um, probably could if it was all well done. Wouldn't matter because it was a little bit of charcoal but bit of charcoal is good for you, I think. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and the bandicoot? Bandicoot, we burn the hair off. It's the same way like flying fox. We call it flying fox gambi. Burn the hair off, cut all the, the wings, head and feet off and then gut it. Then for the old people, we'd smash that that flying fox, that gambi, smash it up into like a, with a mincer, um, those hammer, and tenderize it a bit. Then we put it into a stew and boil it for our old people, for our elders, and because that is a sort of like a medicine in itself. And What does it do? It's good for people with bronchial problems, even though they um, might be allergic to pollens and things. But you have this, it's nothing fat on it, it's pretty lean meat, and you, you can mix it up with any kind of vegetable you like, and you boil it, and then the meat will go all soft, falling off the bones and vegetable, and it's it's good for people with bronchial problems, especially old people, They it's easier for them to consume. What about medicines that you are taking as far as traditional medicines, do you have much knowledge on that? Oh, uh, a little bit. Some um, the old green ant we get up there. I haven't seen any down here, um, but I've been keeping an eye out. Up there, they're plentiful. With that, that keeps away the old common flu and cold that we get up around the place now and then. You get the nest in a big bulb-like thing, and then you break it off the tree. You'll get bitten a few hundred <laughs> times. Yeah. It's it's not them biting, it's the acid that burns in your skin. That's the high content of vitamins C. And then the acid, you squeeze all that into the bowl with a little bit of water. You can chuck a little bit of salt in it and, and squeeze it. And there's, there's um, the, the eggs of that, that the larvae there, whatever they call it, and of that green ant, uh, squeezes it and it comes out in a milky-like juicy thing uh, and you sip on that and it makes you sweat a bit but it's good for you, cleans you inside out, yeah, yeah. all the, takes away the phlegms. Okay, you're also talking about the wattle, that's one of the the blooms that you look for and that's when the stingray are generally around. What other blooms do you look for when you're out hunting? Um, there's the mullet. Mullet is another one that also we know, I think, from March or April all the way to Christmas time, that's when the season for mullets are running because that's when they're at their best and coming upstream to lay the eggs. Um, that's also a sign from um, with the wattle that lets us know when that's running. 
even for little yams, when you're looking for them, there's a certain colour little flower that you've got to have a very sharp eye and know what you're looking for. And when you spot that little lamb, uh, little flower, that yam is only probably maybe five, ten centimetre in the ground. It's only a little round one, but it's very tasty. Yeah. How many do you need to have a good feed? You could get up to ten each. Yeah. Yeah, it depends how much you find yeah, to satisfy you. I think the, the Aboriginal name we call it was Kayalala. It's the name for it. The That little yam. So what other blossoms are you looking for to work out what you're going to go and hunt for? Uh, the, like the other yam, that it's like a potato, but the, this yam... It's very big, the one we get in the rainforest, and that can go, you know, about a metre in the ground. It's same like a potato in the, uh, this, it's got a big heart leaf. When that leaf goes brown, we know that yam is ready to be dug. So we've got to, takes a few ladies and kids to dig it. Yeah, it's worth it though. Are these something that you plant, or they you just find them? No, they're just there all the time. They, um, you can plant them, but uh, where we know where they are, there's lots of them. Yeah, mostly on um, uh, river banks are nice where there's fresh water, and uh, soil is a bit softer to dig. Because you don't mind a bit of fishing. You're talking about the river. You don't mind a bit of fishing, do you? No, I love fishing. Yeah, we go bush and walk about and fishing a lot camping um my favorite fish is eating uh is mangrove jacks and barra and um the freshwater crayfish we call it yongor barramundi we say murabal very tasty um we're, we're on the normanby river up north and it's one of the main rivers up there and it gets pretty flooded in the wet season. Yeah, so we got to isolate ourselves from that, come into town, because you can't, the river comes up quick. What did your teachers think about you taking snake to school? <laughs> I don't tell them about it. They probably, probably get the goosebumps or something, <laughs> I reckon. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's nice. So. I enjoyed doing a lot of artwork at, school um that's basically one of the subjects i really like spending time in um wasn't much at reading because what language did you learn first were you learning your native language or english i was learning i have stayed learning a language then i was uh, once i started going to school i sort of took over learning English a lot and because um, we were in a, on, a, on a reserve in, in a town um, that's um, you speak a lot of English and but we're still learning and still maintaining our local language the language they speak right now is a, is Kukiyemi language and it stretches from the Normby River to to the Law River, east side of Law River, which is a pretty big area, and um, we got family out that way too. Do you miss it when you're not there? Yeah, yeah. It's it's it. Sometimes I like to be out in the bush, um, doing uh, ranger work with uh, my cousins and brothers and family. We'd go out. And GPS sacred sites like my uncle used to go up and and they'd find GPS or maybe a cliff and then they'd send that GPS to the rangers and the rangers got to go to that spot and take recordings, um, what the environment like, um, old mittens, mittens where they sat around cooking food. Um, the recording of the the painting and the galleries they the old people have done. 
yet. Um, we haven't carbon dated them yet, but we'd love to find out. It's just interesting, though. I find it fascinating that you're using modern technology with ancient technology. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, we get that from the, the with the help of the state government to help. Um, but, um, but we need the TOs to traditional owners to go and walk on country. Yeah, it's it's usually some of us do our little warming ceremony and then we go walk about just to let the old people know that we're here to support them, help the let them know that we from the country too. Yeah, it's very unique country where where we are. It's it's sort of like a Gulf of Van sandstone country. And there's a lot of lot of spring springs. At the moment, we we try and control pigs from going in, rubbing their self up against the paintings. And are they doing much damage? They do. Um, we try and put a a fence around the caves. Are there many sacred sites up there? Ah, uh, yes. There's heaps, heaps. Can you uh, talk us through a couple of them? Yeah, um, there's one there called uh, the Big Yellow Man, and there's ones. It's about about the size of your this here, really long. Yeah, but um, they they can be highest this two, highest back to the roof, I think. And uh, once you go into these particular areas, um, makes your hair stand up. Make you feel that the spirits are there. You like they're actually there um, when you go to these spots first time and looking and studying it. Because you need more than a day to study all these, all these old paintings of barramundi, crocodiles, ships, white figures, Chinese figures. Okay. Um, from the gold rush days. My grandfather, Goanji, he was telling me one day he used to, um, he'd eaten Chinese people. Really? Yeah, <laughs> back in the day. How um, did they get on then? Obviously not very well. Well, I hear from stories when they stole them from, when, when they were panning, they'd steal them and take them to their caves and, to stop them from running away, they tie a rope around them and break one of their legs, so they don't can't run. So when they get hungry, when he gets hungry, he'll consume them on the spot. And what was your reaction when you heard that from your grandfather? Uh, I thought he was joking, but no, it was real. Yeah, so I said, oh, "Okay, yeah." He thought it was another source of food I'd say yeah but he I think that, that I don't know what year it was though but that was his last feast there's plenty of food up that way especially seafood like we get them oysters and uh, mussels we say doonga for mussel and maraku for oysters turkey we say diwan they, the season for the turkey delays when the, the story is when the lightning comes in the first storm, that tells us that they're starting to lay. They're laying their eggs. So we go out and raid their egg, raid the nests, and dig how many we need, that's all. And then we don't take the whole lot, and just just till we get a feed, and that's it. Yeah, they're pretty rich, you know, scrub. Scrub turkey um, egg, yeah, which we say gondil for egg. It's pretty rich, yeah. You'd make a nice big scramble if you got a couple. <laughs> <laughs> What's your favourite story your grandfather told you? Do you have one? I knew he used to like burning off. Even when we're at the, the Aboriginal Reserve, he'd, and there was all these big guinea grass everywhere, and the... Uh, Local old sergeant used to come up and ask him who's been making all these fires and 
it'd, it'd be him, you know, because <laughs> that's his way of burning off and... Because that's the way they farm the land. Is that yeah, correct? Yeah, that's right. They they kept the grass down, burned off all the fuel in the um, range of way we say fuel because there's a lot of debris on the drive debris. Because there is a lot of talk about whether we should burn off and whether we shouldn't burn off. What do you think about it with the greenies versus the farmers that are always talking and people that are trying to stop the fires or other people are trying to get the burning to happen? What do you think? I think it's up home. We're lucky to have it. We do it not every time, but when there's a lot of debris building up and that fuel, it can get carried away. But most time we burn off. We just burn what we want to burn, and but we only burn within our area. Otherwise, if you don't have a a, a break, fire break, it's, you can have a you know a fire control burning go wild. It's so there's a fair bit of work and a fair bit of preparation before you do burn off. Yeah, true. Yep, we we got a um, with our ranger. If a fire breaks out, everyone pitches in to help out. It's it's different fire to how the fire they have down south. I feel sorry for them fellas. I think they should do control burning. Um, it is a big. Um, it's an it is an asset. It rejuvenates the the environment, and our blackwood trees and the the all the other local trees. It's a good thing about it. It's they fire tolerant, which is very good. We're lucky, and um, most other place they get very destroyed. And we also keep an eye on endangered animals like the ghost bats. Uh, How do you look after them? I think we started taking down barbed wire fence because um, a lot of bats get hooked up on it because they come feeding at night. It's just normal wire. We we haven't really done fully fenced the whole place yet and strengthened it, but it's all progressing along. The um, with the endangered um, ghost bat. It, when it comes, leaves its nest and comes out and grabs its food, and he goes back into the his cave and eats his food there. He doesn't eat it on the run like other bats and that. Yeah, it's, it's amazing. They get certain little little birds too that come and feed on very low. They like a little like a little budgie, but I don't know what the name for them. Anyway, they're pretty little things. Yeah, and you find them feeding on the bottom and you let them, they pretty much take off pretty quick, fast. I had a uh, friend of mine that uh, is from that area and he said that he likes to walk the land at night because then you can feel the land. It talks to you. Uh, Yep. How do you talk to the land and how do you experience it? Well, we sort of... Well, I listen to the wind, listen to how the wind tells us when the tide is going out and when the tide is turning. Okay, so how do you know that? What what do you what do you read? You'll see that once the wind starts, a bit of huff, huffing, you know it's turning either to go out or in. And then with, like, when we go traditionally hunting for turtle or jugong up that way, um... The community got a special pass for that, and when they get a turtle, uh, it's like a wind spirit will come up after probably uh, 20 minutes, half an hour. Um, it'll get rough. The water will get rough once it's once that happens. It's amazing. Then you have to go back in shore and for safety. You talk about the wind spirit. Yeah. What's your feeling when that happens? It's, it's probably saying that you know you've got enough to eat. Go back and you know share it with your family, because one of those can feed five to six houses. Uh, not eating it all day, just you know just 
in proportions, yeah, which is good. That's why we, when we have um, traditional name, like someone might have uh, a snake as a totem, or a flying fox as a totem, or a barrow as a totem, those people with those totems can't eat that particular animal. Well, yours is obviously not snake. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's it. What's your totem? Um, bullfrog. Goanji means bullfrog. It's about this frog. He's buried in. He's buried himself into the sand, and he'll stay there till till the rain comes, and when the rain starts spitting on the ground, he'll feel it, and then when it starts softening up a bit, he'll come out of the ground, and that's when he believes his spirit gets strong, and then when he goes out and feeds and hunts and then when it's all over I don't know where it goes back to the ground then so when you see one what do you experience is it something special for you is it magical uh, it sort of reminds me of the totem when I saw see one yeah it's like he won't stay on the surface for long yeah he'll just go out and eat his little insects and hunting like most of us um my grandfather, he made uh, his brother Goanji, his name. He made a spear for me one time, and it was a very, pretty deadly spear. So he told me, don't go spearing little skinks or other types of lizards with it. Back in the day, in, we used to walk around with bow and arrows, and we didn't. He, they kept growling us. The old people do not go and spear lizards and that so he made me one of these one of the spears so I took it down the beach and saw this fish and threw the spear and it was a big big pumpkin head trevally probably about 50 pound so got him yeah and and lucky my other mate was there he threw his spear into it and we got him and took it home. And yeah, that was the first big fish I've got with it. Since then I've been making my own spears and they, they, they're like teachers, you know. They teach you a lot how to make um, tools, Womra spear thrower, uh, to make the tar from the native, the ironwood roots, we get the tar from that. So talk us through this spear making process. The tar, you have to make a fire. Um, once you've got the roots from the ironwood bark, that the, and you get the roots, clean it all, wash it all, all the dirt off, then heat it on the, on the fire, Scrape all the bark off into a into a uh, towel, and then um, put and then put hold it in like a bag, crush it, and then keep pulling, putting it back on the boil, and it'll get more sappier and sappier. Once you scrape all that thing, it it goes it'll go hard after a while, and some. People do it very perfectly, yeah, really good. Are you still working on it? Are you getting better? Uh, I think I'm still getting there, yeah. <laughs> it's it's a real expert job, that one. Yeah, it's, but it's worth it. It's like um, uh, Araldite or Ferope kind of style. Yeah, but it's, it's only the one, one mix, yeah. Yeah, we use it for the end down at the prong area of the spear and the tip and uh, end of the wamra where the hook is to hook on to throw the spear. Yeah. How important was it for you to learn this tool making and traditional hunting? It was very, um, very important. If you didn't know how to make that spear or that wamra or 
uh, any kind of tool, it's it'd be it'd be you know you'd probably turn into a catch potato or something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you gotta be. You have to keep it going. You know the the way of life. Um, a lot of people are doing it. It's in their blood. Um, it's 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 their strength. You know, it's the sense of belonging, like their language, that needs to be taught to younger generation. It's an interesting thing. Though. I remember the first time I went back to Holland, where my family comes from. I'd never been there, but it was wow, groundbreaking. I just felt at home. I nearly didn't come back. How do you relate to your connection with your land? Um, I think the temperature and the language and the family and, and the food and that way of life is the magnet of it, I think. Um, like, I, I couldn't go to... I'd like to visit New Zealand, but I couldn't live there. <laughs> <laughs> A bit too cool for me, I think. Yeah. Do you like to travel? Yeah, I'd like to travel, yeah. Um, that place, be, we'd never seen ice apart from in the freezer and that. <laughs> <laughs> Snow, yeah. It's, it's, uh, you know, let alone Australia. I haven't been, I'd like to go visit places in Australia. What about COVID? Do you worry about COVID? Not really, but I'm aware of it. Yeah, it's good to keep that awareness. Um, follow everyone's rules, um, especially when uh, that many um, deceased from it in the world. Um, I think our people should be aware of it because um, we're not a very, very big population in Australia. Um, let alone in the islands and around Australia. You were talking before about spirit and the wind spirit. It's just interesting. The wind's been pretty strong today around us. Mm. What do you think about spirit? Is it still a real big part of your life? Well, I've lived in Cooktown most of my life and it's basically windy eight months a year up there and, and I used to go down and fish a lot just off the jetty and just come home with a mostly barramundis and we'd have barramundi for tea nearly every night. When the water's real clean you don't get much crabs but when it gets stirred up and muddy and that you're getting a lot of nice mud crabs. Um, but if it's clean water it's alright for spearing because you can see even at night one of the old people showed us how to go nighttime spearing, but you have to be a bit careful for crocodiles. Yep, gunnar we call it. I've tasted crocodile; they're a bit uh, salty, <laughs> like <laughs> um, in a patty-like thing, you know. Yeah, but not many of us sort of eaten it. Why is that? I think it was a. Uh, kind of like a story for some of the people our people they respected it because of its probably because of its spirituality and beliefs and and it's how dangerous it can be you said you'd take fish home the dugong and it'd feed five to six houses a lot of sharing that goes on in your community yeah yeah there's a lot of sharing um we try and um, exercise that more often because in our community there's um, like buying, going to the local butcher shop, it can be very expensive sometimes. It's very expensive <laughs> meat these days. <laughs> yeah, true. And um, that's why we share with, like some of our elders don't go out much, um, go out hunting or anything like that. But they love their little bit of fishing, so a lot of young people bring bring food to them, which is a good thing. Is it something that, say, the white society could learn from? Yeah, uh, yeah, okay, yeah, I believe, yeah, yep. 
What's the biggest thing that, say, the white society and culture can learn from your culture? They can learn how to make tools, how to play a didgeridoo, even make a didgeridoo, um, come and study some of the old cave paintings we have, come and study our language, um, share a bit of local knowledge from our elders, um, even just being around um, our people is very educational to share like once we get all our old cave paintings <coughs> heritage listed we'd like to share it with the world have people come from you know from out of this world if they want to <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah we'd like to really share it you know when you go to the cave paintings and when you see them the hair stands up yep what's happening then before we even get to a site we my uncle or like the the ones who's respected higher than me he'd say or she would sing out to the old people and just let them know that we're approaching with our respect um, um, sometimes that's talking their language our language and say that we're here not for long just to come and say hello look at the cave paintings share a bit of the the knowledge on the on the walls um, sometimes the, there's a story there like it's following the season there might be a a figure with a uh, a stingray or a big fat fish or big turtle they're telling a story that um, that they've even traded um, shells for freshwater food. Going back to your grandfather and the fact that he was not getting on real well with the Chinese, how did he get on with the whitefellas back in those days, the station owners? How did that all come about? Well, I'm thinking it might have been his parent that might have took him because um, in his era he would have probably kept a bit quiet about it you know and but in the um in the old caves we find uh, with the drawings of the Chinese there is a we found little uh, old um billy cans the old real metal ones that's almost welded as one piece and just the handle was left and a bit of the rim and all the rest was all gone. And that was in one of the caves. But with the mm. white settlers, the station owners, how did they interact with them? With the Chinese? Or the no, 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 with the station owners themselves. Because, okay, oh, you've got the name MacIver. Yeah, yeah. How did they get along with the station owners? I think they got on all right. They um, were most, back in those days, were given tobacco, sugar, tea... Um, probably clothing and blankets too, to as um, doing stock work, free, um, supposed to be paid labour, but it didn't happen that way. It was more working for your food and that um, smokes and stuff. What sort of stock work were they doing? They were doing like catching horses and cattle work, yarding, building yards. Was he a good stockman, your grandfather? Yeah, yeah, he'd been through a lot of, um, they all been through a lot of um, stations, right, everywhere. Um, one of the big ones he worked out when he was younger days was VRD. That's a big station up in the Territory. Yeah. He um he left he ran away from the um, dormitories and stuff when he was a kid and went looking for a job. Ended up following the the rings ringer circuit kind of thing and getting work on the stations. He he'd been to that's only one major thing. He's been around a lot. 
You like to uh, take people and want to take people to show them your cave paintings when they're all gazetted and properly located and they're safe enough to be shown. What sort of things do you do on the property? We'd um, do a little warming ceremony and welcome them to country, tell them, you know, we come here talking, um, tell them that we all welcome and we come in one spirit good spirit and we're going to live in good spirit and this place is for all of us to share and we want to take you to a, to trial and tell them what certain uh, plant is for what which one to eat uh, where water is uh, we have to um, count them how many? Make sure we don't lose anyone in the bush. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Have you ever lost anyone? <laughs> Not yet. Um, <laughs> no one got pinched yet. <laughs> <laughs> and and um, would even if the, that certain fruit is in bloom, would give them a taste of it. Yeah, like the um, we have bush lady apple, the black currant, a yam. Uh, Kwandong. Um, Do you get many people that want to go and experience your culture these days? Yep, we we do. As soon as this um, COVID settled down, we will get a, get a few, get some back in there. Because um, where we are, there's no just no neighbours. It's just bush and the bird wildlife and that running stream that comes from a spring and uh, it's very cold the water clean it's just a natural filter in itself there through the sandstones very I'd, I'd invite any anyone who wants to come up north and come and say hello and yarn um, family orientated which is good and um, it's Basically, f- free accommodation when I'm there. We um, tell them where to camp, um, get to meet some of my family. When you're actually uh, showing people through, so you show them how to hunt, you're showing them how to cook, what else are you showing them? I can show them how to play didgeridoo and how to collect it and how to find it. And my uncle can show them how to throw a spear properly with a spear throw or with your hand. What's the trick? The spear throwing? Yeah. Yeah, just uh, the spear throw is, is good, makes it more powerful and you can get further distance. With the hand spear, it's almost like javelin. It's it's good sport, yeah. Um, it's good for target. I used to practice on coconuts first. Just keep practicing on coconut and eventually you get pretty well used to it. When you see something in the water, you got to estimate its speed and where you got to hit in front or in the back or wherever. Yeah, or straight down. It's pretty sort of good good judge, you know. Is it different though when you have a woomera? Yeah, yeah, it's, that's it. you got to... The harder you hit it, the more swift it'll be, and um, I think it's a bit more accurate with the Womera. More, it's pretty straight, yeah. Got more force. More force, yeah, that's it. What's the biggest animal that you've pulled down? A pig, yeah, with a... (laughs) With a spear. Yeah, with a spear. I put a, I had no proper Womera, so I made a hook out of a tree, just a, like almost a number seven, and put it on the back of the spear, and I saw hit this um, young this boar, got this boar. Yeah, it was. Uh, it was. We didn't catch any fish, <laughs> so saw these pigs on the beach. So I went over, and they all took off in the bush. And I saw one. Took me on the second shot. I got him. Yeah. I got him in the ribs. Yeah, I heard this thing sing out, and 
Yeah, that was a good shot. Any danger, though, when you're out doing this sort of hunting? Um, yeah, you can. Um, there's a lot of snakes up that way where I come from, like deaf adders, brown snake, type hands, and red belly, all them kind of thing. That won't do any real damage. Mm, no, yeah. <laughs> yeah, always. Yeah, because it's a very leafy area and you know, a lot of logs. Were you ever afraid of snakes? Yeah, I don't like snakes. <laughs> <laughs> Only the edible ones. <laughs> or cooked ones would be better. <laughs> <laughs> so what is your favourite bush tucker, though, when you're, when you're eating meat? Um, you, you were talking about the snakes, the mm. bandicoot. Is there one that you keep coming back for that you can't get away from? I like those um, um, goanna. That's a nice one. Goanna and like bandicoot-like things. They're, they're easy to prepare. And um, flying fox, I like fruit bat too. Now, when you were going out in the bushes showing people to find ditch wood, what happens when you're out looking for a ditch? Yeah, when we um, have people visiting, I, I tell them that collecting a didgeridoo for themselves, it's family orientated and they can bring their grandfather, grannies uncles, auntie and mums and dad and kids and they find it very exciting to go. We drive to a certain spot and then leave the car and then we start walking into the bush with a maybe an axe um, and a saw, that's about it. We try not to um, use, um, well I try not to use chainsaws because it's a bit noise bit too much noise and yeah and anyway we'd go out find this tree and there's a you can tell by down the bottom of the base of that tree there's a little outlet where a lot of the stuff from the inside of the tree has been fallen out and also there's heaps of um and nest around that's a sign of hollow trees around and there's ditch there. If there's no ant nest around, there's hardly any ditch there, so don't sort of chop every tree and fire one. <laughs> <laughs> and, and sometimes you can first cut uh, or two, three, but we've found a new way of sorting. Instead of cutting the tree, we'd drill a hole, and if because it's only about three centimetres thick or two centimetres and if that drill goes in real easy after that you know that's a um, can be turned into a didgeridoo that tree. So when you go out on one of these explorations how many didges do you normally find? Um, Maybe about five maybe half a dozen and um, it depends how many family I get who wants one and the tree we collect is Grown Northern Territory in the east coast of Australia, up where we are. It's called a Eucalyptus Phoenicia. Scarlet gum, another name for it. Does it have a name in your language? Yeah, I can't remember the name, but I think it's come too close. Garay, Garay could be, could be that palm, big, big palm tree. Yet I'm not sure. Yeah, it, I know it. I just can't remember it. You just see the tree <laughs> and you go. <laughs> so yeah. once you've once you've actually identified it, you've you've cut the tree, mm-hmm. you've got what you want, what happens then? Um that that particular tree it it'll when it's growing, um termites are always uh, attacking it, but it doesn't kill it. As it's growing it's the inside of the tree is pretty much building up with termites um, mound and uh, do all that wood chip and how they um, eat the inside and there's trees about about white as me and and they've su- survived the fire and they haven't destroyed anything because um, inside once the, all the clay builds up it hardens but it's still, even though um, cyclone come, it's 
and strong wind doesn't knock them out of the, the sandy floor, the fauna. Yeah, it's very strong tree. Beautiful uh, orange, orangey blossom on it. What's the process when you've got to hollow it out and to finish the ditch and prepare uh, it? The hollow bit, that's done by the termites. They eat all that out. And all we do is just cut the small end of that, that stick, the ditch, and round it off. And you can round it off or put a uh, beeswax on top of it to suit your your particular lips. Um, you can make the mouthpiece a bit more rounder or bigger. And with the bottom end, you make that bigger so the sound come out nice uh, when you're blowing it. If you want to learn how to play it, I teach people how to play. Uh, try and do the... Well, first I try and make them make a sound. What's the sound that they have to make? Kind of like a... Like that. And once you get that sound going in there, then you're gonna, you can make all kinds of growling sound like birds once it sounds different in a dead stick and once you get making those kind of sound you can then maybe practice the recycle breathing it's an amazing instrument but the circular breathing what's the trick or what's the secret um one fellow told me if you say that name didgeridoo that kind of helps you breathe back and then uh, you could also use your cheeks as the third lung uh, you're blowing out you're breathing in at the same time um, yeah so squeezing the cheeks squeezing your cheeks as you're breathing in yeah you sort of when you first do it you feel like you're gonna pass out but, <laughs> <laughs> but it, it, you'll get there yeah. we've got a ditch here which is my ditch yep. would you mind just um, grabbing it and giving us a bit of a demo and, and just uh, yep. yep yep so point it this way that sounds good if you just want to rest it on the desk there Try and make a uh, kookaburra this time. <laughs> yeah, that's amazing. <laughs> so, how does the didge rate that that I've brought to the to the table? Nice, nice. Yeah. So, when you do, you, you get yourself a didge, and is it something that you just resonate with? There's different different sounds. What are you looking yeah. for? Yeah, um, you can get different lengths, uh, different different hollows in them. Um, that one's good. Yeah, I got one is a little bit longer, but I need to get. I'd like to have a few, you know, different lengths, different thickness. Yeah, different. It's all varies sort of thing um, you can get bassy one tinny ones yeah you seem to tune that one up all right <laughs> <laughs> so ceremony how important is ceremony in your life back in the day it was pretty strong for younger generations to go through that um, I think um, these days not many well in certain places they um, some communities do it and some I don't know if they still practice things, um, but it. I think it sometimes get abused. It's just like, you know, um, alcohol and drugs and that. That really abuses um, younger generations in our communities. Are people not used to that? I think they should, if they're in trouble with the law or anything. That's where they should go back and be with elders 
learning being spiritual and going through customs and making themselves strong and respectful and self-respect. Do you consider yourself an elder these days? Um, I thought I was still young. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I think so. Now I'm getting on now. My birthday coming up soon. So I'll be, I don't know, 25 or something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think it's important to have elders. Um, local police have called me an elder now. So, yeah. So I feel good to be like that because you get to go to school, you know, with and talk to kids about culture and survival and uh, what to eat out there, what can you share with people. Does it feel good to pass on to others like what your grandfather passed on to you? Yeah, yeah, I reckon it's, I think it's important for um, a lot of kids, uh, there's kids of just don't want to go down that track and learn something of seniors, they get either lost or um, or disconnected or um, no opportunity or somehow, you know. Like um, if I brought up in Sydney, I probably wouldn't have had this kind of little bit of knowledge about Bushway. I think it's important, very important. Do you like the city? I'll go and visit the place, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I couldn't live there, no. Too big, too big. Cities are too big for me. I like to be around open space, few people, uh, you know, meeting good people. So when do you head back to North Queensland? When will you be back teaching people about your culture and your, your environment and your land and hunting again? Mm. Well, I'm hoping to go back up there as soon as I, uh, soon as I can, really. And I'm hoping to make it up to place called Laura for the festival there's a there's a cultural festival they have up there every year and it's for it's about the whole of Cape York come together and do a big dance and celebrate life in Cape York and it's truly worth going to visit because you see all these different costumes and designs and um, the dress-ups and the sh- dancing. And people. So if someone wants to go and check out what you're doing when you when you are back, how do they do that? Um, I'll be um, putting um, my information out online before I go there and and I will display a, um, a workshop, a digital workshop, and they can come along and do it. Um, it it'll be however long the the festival is, and whoever wants to m- make one, they get to take it home with them, and we sit down have yarn, and I'll help them paint it if they need a couple of little designs on it, traditional designs. And so you say you'll put something online. Where will you do it, and how do they find you if someone does want to find you? Um, they'll have to check out on my on my web page and um what's your web page wait am i pushing you <laughs> <laughs> i'm not very digital in that kind of form i think it's uh, they can get in touch with me on joseph mckiver iCloud.com.au, whatever they call it yeah um or just give us a call well thanks for joining us joe mckiver and if you wouldn't mind if you could just play us out and a little bit of didge to uh play us out something different to uh end our over the bonnet segment Mm -hmm. sure Joe McIver, thanks for joining us over the bonnet. Thank you. This podcast is brought to you by Gympie Central Medical Centre. GMED is your local medical practice in Gympie, specialising in quality family medical care. 
Are you always sick, ranging from acute medical issues to management of long-term chronic conditions? When you need to get better, even if you have complex health problems, get the diagnosis right with Gympie Central Medical Centre. Contact them in Gympie on 54811873 or you can find them at 35 Excelsior Road. The podcast is also brought to you by Gympie Foam and Rubber, your local store that specialises in foam cut to size. They've got all sorts of good stuff like upholstery and craft foam, even loose-fitting filling foam. The shop is packed with things like mattresses and pillows. They'll also help you get down and dirty with rubber flooring and mats, anti-fatigue matting, and they have industrial mats and rubber. Aha, not so squeezy. If they don't have it, Andrew will get it. Plus, for Over the Bonnet listeners, mention the show and ask for your discount and you'll receive 10% off the marked price. That's right, 10%. But that's only for Over the Bonnet listeners when you mention the show and you have to ask for your discount. We can't go without mentioning Luscious Licks, 100% fruit ice cream. You can find them at local markets and all sorts of events. They are a really delicious alternative to conventional ice cream. Plus, the good news is Luscious Licks is completely dairy-free, gluten-free, and with no added sugar because there's nothing added. And best of all, it's guilt-free because it's healthy and it tastes great. Look out for Luscious Licks in the pink marquee at a market or event near you. And finally, the show is brought to you by bepositive.com.au in Yandina. Bepositive.com.au is your one-stop shop for first-rate beekeeping supplies and raw honey. It doesn't matter if you're just a backyard beekeeping enthusiast, semi-professional apiarist, or just interested in bees. Check out Be Positive on the Sunshine Coast or on the net at bepositive.com.au for a wide range of beekeeping equipment and advice that's backed up by more than 20 years' experience. Be Positive also provide apiary services including swarm relocation, hive setups, and Steve is always ready to share a wealth of knowledge about proper beekeeping practices. To get started, check out the online shop at bepositive.com.au and they'll promptly ship orders Australia-wide.